0: In the U.S. Army's Biodefense Digital Library, it states that we fear what we do not understand and that information on any threat reduces its potential to do harm. What do you know about nerve gas if it were released in America today? You're listening to a special segment on disaster medicine on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Richard Wiseman. Dr. Wiseman is an associate professor of pediatrics at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. At Jackson Memorial Hospital, he's a toxicologist and director of the Florida Poison Information Center Miami. He was awarded France's Distinguished Medal of Merit for his international work in this area, and we're very pleased to have him with us today. Today, we're discussing the medical effects of nerve gas. Welcome, Dr. Wiseman. Thanks for taking the time to be with us.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: So, remind us, and for those of us who don't work with it every day, what's the basic physiology behind nerve gas?
1: Well, the nerve gases can be thought of as being very, very super potent pesticides. And they all act by inhibiting the enzyme acetylcholinesterase, which allows acetylcholine to accumulate in very large quantities at all of the nerve endings.
0: So what is the mechanism different with different gases that could be used, or what nerve gases would be likely to use in the event of a terrorist attack?
1: There are several that are available, the G-series, G-A, GB, GC, and then there's the VX formulation, which is an oiler-based preparation that has a longer persistent in the environment. But they all basically act the same way by inhibiting the cholinesterases in the body.
0: So then this would feed into the antidote. Tell us about the antidotes for nerve gas.
1: Well, the antidotes involve trying to prevent acetylcholine from causing interaction with its nerve endings, and the most important of the antidotes is still atropine, and what atropine does is it decreases the secretions in the lungs and also releases the tremendous muscular contraction of the pulmonary vasculature. So that what happens is that people that have been exposed to a nerve agent drowned in their own secretions, and then when they're rescued, once intubated, these people are terribly, terribly difficult to try to ventilate because their lungs are so stiff.
0: So regarding the antidotes and this training, who's already trained in using it? Are you involved in some of these programs? Are, Are EMS units ready?
1: Well, EMS units are ready, and that's that's the first of two antidotes. The second is Tupam or Protopam, which then works on the nicotinic side and actually regenerates the cholinesterase symptoms. The people that are trained in this are the paramedics, because what is believed to happen is that if you are truly exposed to one of these nerve agents, it's probably going to kill you or kill you within a matter of a minute or two, so that... These are not patients that are going to have time to be able to be transported to an emergency department. If they're going to be saved, they're going to have to be saved on the scene. The management of this is is kind of patterned after what the military did with the development of the Mark I kit with the combination use of both atropine and and protopam.
0: So what are they taught to do when they get to the scene? Talk us through it, realizing that all attempts may be futile and people may not come out of this, but there's still going to be a, a protocol. What do you teach them?
1: What we basically teach them is the first thing is recognition that it's a nerve agent attack. And and you have to be very aware that there are a lot of things that could potentially be used to gas large numbers of people. And if you don't have the right diagnosis, you probably are going to proceed down the wrong path of therapy. So the first thing that they need to recognizes that they've got a large number of people all exhibiting the same symptoms. And then the symptoms that they should see should be that of cholinergic toxicity. And probably the most important of these is being able to recognize that people have pinpoint pupil and at the same time have tremendous fluid secretions with diaphoresis, rhinorrhea, hypersalivation. They probably will have loss of bowel and bladder spontaneously. So that this is kind of the picture of cholinergic toxicity that they should be recognizing. And then when they're present, to have the Mark I kit available and to utilize it. And most people can be taught to use these things very easily. They're on auto-injector and they're intended to give intramuscular injections And basically, the military trains that you use, one for mild exposure, two for moderate, and three, severe. And there's a little bit of areas of gray as to when a person is mild, when a person is moderate, when it's severe. But most people take it pretty easily is that minimal symptoms is the first level, and severe seizing down on the ground, unable to breathe is the middle or the most severe. And then the middle is everything lying between.
0: So the military, sure, they're, they're trained and they can probably use them appropriately and they're redrilled and drilled on it. What about civilians? Where are these kits now? Are they all over the country? Are they just in larger emergency rooms? I, I know you're involved in hazmat training.
1: Well, they're all over the country, and that's somewhat of a problem because the military tends to deal with young men between the ages of 18 and 30-something in the battlefield. These kits may not be appropriate for the elderly. They may not be appropriate for very young patients because a different dose has to be utilized. Also, they deliver the drug by the intramuscular route, and certainly in the hospital, if you're able to get intravenous access, the effectiveness of the drug would be much better if it can be given intravenously for both the atropine and the protopam. So while these kits are available and they're great for in-field use, hospitals doctor's office, any place where these patients are going to be treated, really should have more than just the Mark I kits and, and should have IV atropine and IV protopam available.
0: For those of you just joining us, you're listening to a special segment on disaster medicine on Reach MDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. And I'm Dr. Shera Johnson. I'm speaking with Dr. Richard Wiseman from the Poison Control Center in Miami. Tell us, so what are the different routes of entry? I mean, um, gas, yes, inhalation, and what else? What about contamination on the skin?
1: Certainly, these agents are very well absorbed through the skin, and that's important because not only is the person going to be exposed by that route, but any of the rescuers that unknowingly touch the patient or come in contact with their clothing that might be contaminated are also likely to be exposed unless they have the appropriate protective equipment on.
0: What's the time to exposure, or how quickly does it kill?
1: By inhalation, it can kill within minutes to seconds. If the route is only minimal on the clothing that has to absorb through the skin, probably five to ten minutes.
0: And now with with all your years of experience, I mean, hypothetically, how could this be released? Is it is it a real threat to civilians in today's society?
1: It's, greatest utilization would come in a closed space. And the example that we're most familiar with was the release in Japan of sarin gas, which was done inside of a subway car. Certainly, if you're outside, particularly in hot temperatures, the gas is relatively volatile and it probably would disperse fairly quickly without impacting large numbers of people unless it was sprayed directly on them. So that you'd look for a situation inside a building or inside some other type of closed place where the gas could reach some type of critical concentration.
0: It's like an astrodome or?
1: Astrodome would really be difficult. Certainly, if you went into the bathroom of the astrodome where it's a little bit more closed off and released it, that would work. But I think that if you were to take it out to the 50-yard line and release it there, very few people would be exposed to it.
0: So it's got to be smaller and contained and...
1: Contained, exactly.
0: A certain ratio or a certain amount in proportion to the space?
1: Exactly. Now, what's even more interesting is that if you have people that are exposed and are immediately killed to it that end up being brought to hospitals, certainly the hospital personnel that are going to take care of these people also have to be very aware of what's happening and certainly we had mentioned earlier that they really should have protective equipment on pappers or some other type of level A or level B type protection possibly level C that will prevent any type of additional chemical exposure. Now there was an interesting situation that happened with the sarin gas in Tokyo because the temperature at that time was about 45 degrees And what we know about sarin gas is that it becomes a gas somewhere around 65, 70 degrees. So that what was happening is that the people were coated with the sarin. It was in a liquid form. And they're outside at 45 degrees. Well, they're brought into the emergency department where all of a sudden it's the temperatures in the 70s and 80s. And they began to basically off-gas, and the people were exposed. We have a very different situation in South Florida, but that's pretty unique for the country because our people would be exposed outside where it would be 80 degrees, where it exists as a gas, and then they would be brought inside and they would go from hot to cold as opposed from cold going to warm. And that provides us with a little extra barrier protection. But The people up north have to be very careful as they move people from a cooler environment to a warmer environment that they don't change the gas into a more toxic form.
0: So when you said off gas, you mean release it from your skin?
1: It may exist on the patient as liquid on their clothing. They come into a warm environment and all of a sudden it begins to form a gas and then everybody in that treatment room becomes affected by it without even having touched the patient. And we believe that's what happened in in Japan with large numbers of healthcare people that were exposed.
0: Did the Japanese learn from this and set up any, if you know, any different system for dealing with this in the future?
1: Well, I think that what a large number of people are doing is recognizing the importance of decon outside of the hospital to remove clothing from the patients to make sure that they're clean of the chemical toxin before they're brought into an area of the hospital where other people can be exposed. So I think there was an awful lot learned from that. There was awful lot learned also about the number of people that presented to the hospital in comparison to the number of people that were actually exposed. Most of the data that I chose is, is there was almost a thirty to one ratio so that they were seeing thirty people that thought they were exposed for every one that actually was exposed. And this tended to kind of overwhelm the healthcare system. So that again, having an effective triage system where you're able to identify the people that have the meiosis, the pinpoint pupils, the people that have the real cholinergic toxicity, and get them to care while also providing care to the worried well, but not necessarily emergency medical care. They basically need counseling and, and some psychological support because the bottom line on terror is that it's there to terrorize people, and anybody that's in the area is going to absolutely be scared to death and end up with all types of problems presenting to the emergency departments. probably an increased risk of heart attacks and everything else that would happen if you scare the hell out of a lot of people.
0: Dr. Wiseman, thank you for being my guest today. Thank you. We've had Dr. Richard Wiseman on, and we've been discussing nerve gas, clinical effects, and practical implications. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to a special segment on Reach MDXM 157 on disaster medicine. ReachMD is the channel for medical professionals. To comment or to listen to our full library of podcasts, visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.